is what is the point of the book of Revelation? Um, why, why is it in the Bible and, and why is it here? And I ask that question because I think a lot of people miss, miss the point of it. Right? And, and they have mistaken ideology and mistaken theology. For instance, some people think the point of Revelation is to give us the day and the hour of Jesus' return. Right? I st- read a st- uh, story about a telemarketer that was calling around to different homes, and he called into this one home, and this little boy answered the phone, and he kind of whispers into the phone, Hello? And the telemarketer said, Is your mommy home? Yes, but she's busy. He said, Okay, is your daddy home? Yes but she's busy. Yes, but he's busy. Are there any other adults that are in your home right now? Yes, the police are here. (laughs) Said, could I I speak with one of the police officers? They're busy too. Said, what are they all busy doing? They're looking for me, right? Um, (laughs) And I wonder if Jesus sometimes feels that way about our treatment of the book of Revelation, that, oh my goodness, They're looking for me, and while it's good to look for Jesus in the Bible, we certainly always want to look for Jesus in the Bible, Jesus himself discouraged us from trying to discover from the book of Revelation and other end times passages in the Bible to to put together an exact time frame for his return. So some of you may remember uh, a guy, Edgar uh, Wisenat, which is an actual kind of funny pun on his name, but anyway, that's his actual name. He wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988, right? So 88 comes and 88 rolls around. We're all still here, right? And uh, so Edgar decides to write another book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1990, right? Sold a few less copies than why he'll return in 1988. 90 rolls around, nothing happens. So Edgar decides to write another book, Why Jesus Will Return in 1995, right? 1995 book really didn't trend at all, right? It was... Uh, pretty much didn't sell any copies at all. But Edgar went on to write uh, commentary after commentary on the book of Revelation. And he's, he was quoted as saying, if we could just understand this book, we could understand the, the exact time, or at least the month and the year, he later said, at least the month and the year that Jesus is going to return. Now, here's the deal with that, guys. Jesus Christ himself said one time that in his human body, he didn't know the day and the time. Call me crazy, but I have a hard time believing Edgar's got it, all right? Um, now, now, I might be crazy about that, but Jesus himself warned us about this exact thing. Don't use the book of Revelation. Don't use any apocalyptic literature, end-of-the-world literature, to try to figure out the exact time and day and month and year or whatever that Jesus is coming back. We, we don't know, all right? So some people, that's their view of why God gave us Revelation. Other people, they thought think that God gave us Revelation that God was intentionally trying to be confusing, right? So he uses all this imagery and allegory and numerology because he wants to keep his children guessing about when he will return. And so a lot of people think that Revelation is intentionally uh, confusing to people and it's Jesus trying to keep us on our toes. Now, I don't know. Again, call me crazy. But I think a book whose opening line is the Revelation of Jesus Christ was not written to be intentionally confusing, right? He's trying to reveal something to us in this book. And I think that we get confused by this book because we think he's trying to reveal something he's not trying to reveal, right? And so we get confused, but the, the text was not intended to be confusing. It was, te- it was intended to be revealing, 
Now, another purpose that people think the, the revelation was given to us for was so that we could identify the Antichrist and identify the mark of the beast. Now, now I've got some attention going here. Okay, this is good. All right. Now, I don't want to be flippant here, but let me just be clear on this. Every generation of people has had someone that they believe was going to be the Antichrist, the kind of figurehead that was going to stand against God and stand against, against his people. For instance, in World War II, they had Adolf Hitler. Right? Every Christian believed that Adolf Hitler was going to be the Antichrist. In our modern day sphere, we have Microsoft. All right? So, now, in all seriousness, I read it in my study. Right? Someone believed that Microsoft was going to represent the Antichrist. Now, now here's, here's my problem with any of this. When you read about the Antichrist in, in, in the book of Revelation, we're going we're to study this later on in the series, he's not exactly a picture of subtlety, okay? He, he's not exactly trying to confuse his, his, his purposes. As a matter of fact, the text reveals about him that he does deceive a lot of people, but the people of God see right through him. In the text, the Antichrist is going to force everyone to worship him. He's going to kill those that don't. He's going to force the mark of the beast on everyone, which is some way in which he can control buying and selling. Right? He's trying to build a global empire so he can be in ultimate control. And he's going to say to people, I'm the one to be worshipped. I'm the one to be in control. I'm the one to be in charge, not God. If you are a follower of Jesus, listen to me, you are not going to have any wonderment about who the Antichrist is. You're going to see it. And you're going to see him or her for who they actually are. Many will be deceived. But if you love Jesus and if you're a Christian, you're going to see right through it. So I remember a few years ago, a credit card company, I, I can't remember which one now, but they revealed this technology where they were going to try to put like a chip into like people's hands or at one point the story even came out like in your forehead, all right? They were going to put this chip in your forehead so that you, you know how when you go to the store and you're like, oh, you know, I forgot my credit card or whatever, how frustrating that is. This credit card was proposing that this was going to be the answer to that problem. You'll, you'll have your credit card information with you at all times, Christians lost their minds, okay? It's the mark of the beast, right? Don't, don't take it, don't take it. This is the mark of the beast. Listen, you making an agreement with your credit card company so that you can always have your credit card with you is not the mark of the beast. It's just not. That's you making an agreement with your credit card company. Let's not lose our minds here in this book, all right? The mark of the beast is going to be forced upon you or attempted to be forced upon you. And it is an effort to control you and to control the world. But then beyond that, I know I'm kind of ranting, but just let me go for a few more minutes, okay? Um, cheaper than therapy, all right? Um, this is what bugs me so bad about all of this, is when you read the book of Revelation and you read commentaries based on the book of Revelation, you can walk away from the impression that some commentators believe the Antichrist is the star of the show. He's not. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is discussed in the text for approximately half a chapter. Right? The Antichrist is not the star of the show. The star of the show is, he's always the right answer. Exactly, right? The star of the show is Jesus. Right? In the book of Revelation, he's the one to be worshipped. He's the one to be followed. He's the one to be adored. The Antichrist, the mark of the beast, it is an interesting rabbit hole, but it is not the point of the book. 
Right? And the point of the book is not to confuse Christians. It's not to give us the day and the hour. It's not to show us who the Antichrist is. I, I would understand the confusion of all of these commentators a little bit better if John in the book of Revelation didn't tell us what his purpose was. Right? So if you have your Bibles, open up to the last uh, book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And I want to give you just a, a little bit of a history lesson while you're turning there um, so that we can understand this text just a little bit better. Um, I love... Roman history. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I love to study it when, I, when I'm doing sermons and all of that because for a good chunk of when the Bible was written, Rome was the occupying force in a lot of the nations of the world. They were just in, they had all power and all control. And so um, in AD 70, Rome was occupying, right before that, Rome was occupying Israel. And, and a group of um, Jewish leaders decided that they were going to overthrow Rome from their nation. Now, you actually see the beginnings of this during Jesus' time, where they're trying to get Jesus to lead a revolt against Rome. Jesus like, that's not the type of Savior I came to be. That's not the type of Messiah I came to be. But you begin to see this even during the life of Christ. In AD 70, they have enough. They say, we're going to rise up against Rome. It was a bloodbath. It was awful. As a, as the result of that uprising in AD 70, the temple of God was completely destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was totally annihilated. Most history books will tell you that a million Jews lost their lives in this uprising. A million people lost their lives in the uprising. A hundred thousand were taken into captivity. All right, and so. Rome celebrated this, and they had a big parade le leading into Rome, and there was a young man that was on a, on a white horse, right? keep that in mind for a couple weeks, because we're going to see Jesus return on a white horse, demonstrating he's better than this guy. Right? So this guy comes into Rome, he's on a white horse, he's 19 years old in AD 70. He would later become the emperor of Rome at the time that Revelation was written. His name was Domitian. And Domitian, and one of the huge themes of Revelation is Jesus saying again and again and again, I'm better than Domitian. I'm better, right? And he'd say that about every world leader, but um, I'm digressing just a little bit. So Domitian, at that AD 70, he's 19 years old. He's watching the uprising fail. He's watching all this stuff happen. Domitian learned a couple of lessons as a result of all this that happened. One was, he said, I will never allow any religion outside of Rome's religious system to gain power again. So he felt like Judaism and Christianity, that they were allowed uh, to, to become more powerful than they should have been. And, and so he said, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never allow this again. I'll never allow a, another religion to gain that much power and that much control. And then the second thing he walked away from the, this event was that when you kill someone, you make them a martyr and you cause the movement to become more powerful. So when you read about Domitian in world history, he actually didn't kill that many Christians. His strategy was persecution. So we're going to persecute the Christians. We're going to persecute the Jews too. Uh, and if you were a Jewish Christian, you were really going to be persecuted. But he said, we're going to persecute to try to dissuade people from trying to take over on Rome again. And so at the time that, that he takes power, John is the last remaining disciple. And he's about 90. All right, so he's at the end of his life. And Domitian says, I'm not going to make a martyr out of this guy. He's, he's, I'm not going to kill him. He's 90 years old. He's at the end of his life, but we ought to do something with him. And so Domitian makes the decision. Church history says this. This really can't be verified. But church history says they made the decision to, to throw John into a pot of boiling oil. 
all right, um, as, as punishment for, for what he had done. Throw John this pot of oil, pull him right back out so that he's, you know, damaged and beat up and, and bruised. And, and then they, they throw him over onto the island of Patmos. And, and that, this is where John lives out the rest of his life under the reign of Domitian. And it's on this island that something very special and very unique happens. Let's read Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And then the text goes on to describe how things are ultimately going to end before Jesus' second return. Now, I want you to notice how the revelation came to be. This is important to to me anyway. Um, And and just as a side note, um, it is called revelation. It's not called revelations, right? It's one revelation, and we're going to talk about this later. It's a series of scenes laid out in one revelation. It's kind of like saying, you know, the Walmarts, right? It's it's the revelation, all right? It's one of those pet peeve things. But it starts with God, all right? It starts with God the Father. He gives the revelation to his son, Jesus. You see that in the first couple of verses. Jesus gives the revelation to an angel. And an angel brings the revelation to John, who writes it down for all of us. And this John is... Uh, almost everybody agrees that this is uh, John, Jesus' best friend, um, that, that wrote four other books of the New Testament. He, uh, uh, not only does he identify himself as John in a couple different points in this text, but when you read the cadence of the text in Revelation, it is very similar to John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all, all written by one of Jesus' best friends. And so, so this, is, this is that John. And the question becomes, how does John receive the Revelation? God gives it to the son, the son gives it to an angel, an angel comes and brings it to John. And if you read the book of Revelation, you're not going to have any bit of a hard time buying this. I think it came in a dream. Um, And the reason I believe that is God often communicated these types of things to people, uh, Daniel and Ezekiel, in dreams. And just to be totally honest with you, it reads like a dream sequence, Right, when you think about the last dreams that you had, you're like in a, you know, a grade school class, and then all of a sudden you have no idea how you got, you're in the middle of the jungle, right? and then you have no idea. Right? It's, it's a series of scenes that have a little bit of correspondence to each other, but each scene kind of also stands on its own, and Revelation very much reads this way. It is a series of scenes in one unfolding Revelation. And so the other reason I believe it is what verse 2 says that the angel comes to John and it says, John testifies to everything he saw. Right? It doesn't say John testified to everything he heard, it's everything he saw. So in some way, his eyes are opened and this revelation comes to him. And this is what that word revelation means. It's sometimes also called uh, apocalypse or apocalyptal, apocalyptal, right? Easy for you to say. it is the unfolding and unveiling of things to come. So this is what John's receiving. And, and here's what I want you to see. Again, if we don't understand anything else, we need to understand this. The purpose of Revelation is not to show you who the Antichrist is going to be. The purpose of Revelation is not to confuse you. And the, pur- the purpose uh, of Revelation is not to give you a detailed plan of how it's all going to unfold. Look at what he says in verse 3. The purpose and, and plan of Revelation is to be a blessing to you. Right? Verse 3. Blessed is he 
who reads the words of the prophecy. Now, I might be wrong on this, but I believe this is the only piece of biblical literature that promises a blessing to you just for reading it. It says, just read it, and, and, and you'll be blessed. I don't know of any other piece of biblical, now I believe you are blessed from from reading other pieces of biblical literature, but I believe this is the only biblical text that comes with a promise of this nature, that you will be blessed just for reading it. And the ironic thing about all of this is, is so few people do. Because it's so strange and it feels so weird, but, but, but John promises if you'll just read it, you'll be blessed. And so I wanna encourage you with something. Um, will you read the book of Revelation with me this series? Um, here's the thing. Will you understand everything you read? No. <laughs> There's some stuff that you're like, this is weird, right? Yeah. And there is stuff where people have been fighting about this stuff for thousands and thousands of years. Brilliant scholars have been fighting about this stuff for a couple thousand years. You will not understand everything you read. You will be blessed for having read it. You will be blessed for having read it. So here's my plan, and you can join me in this if you want. Uh, the, the series is 11 weeks. Revelation is 22 chapters. Now, I'm a public school kid, but that's two chapters a week, I think. Right? Two chapters a week. And so I'm just planning to, to break that up however you want. You can do it all in one sitting. You can break it out over several days. But if you'll read just two chapters of Revelation every week, by the end of this series, you will have read the whole Thing. So he says, you're going to be blessed if you read it. So I just want to encourage you from the beginning here, please read this text. But look at what he also says. You will be blessed if you hear it. Right? He goes on to say, you'll be blessed if you hear it. This is mo- most often how the Bible describes a, a little bit of a, of a subtle thing. that It is possible to hear something with your ears, but not to hear it with your heart. Right? So he says, just be open. Right? This is what he's saying to you. Have your heart and have your mind open to what God wants to teach you through these texts. Right? So we don't just want to hear the words with our ears. We want to hear them with our hearts and remain open to everything that God would like to teach us. So one of, I would view this as a failed series. If at the end of this series you said, that was really interesting. Eh, failure. Right? We don't want to preach an interesting series. We want to preach a challenging series. And so this is, this is kind of what John is saying here is don't just be interested in this. Be challenged by it. And you see this in other uh, apocalyptic literature. Look at 1 John 4, 7 up on the screen. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-minded and, and, and uh, clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray above all love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of, of, of sins. So Peter says, the end of all things is near. So what? Is that just interesting? Is that just mind stimulating? The end of all things is near. No, no. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Right? There's always a do something that, that comes next. Second Peter 3.11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and the speed of its coming. So everything's going to be destroyed at the, at the end of all time. So what, is that just interesting? Is that just a stimulation for our mind? Peter again says, no, allow this to motivate you to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of Jesus' return. And then Jesus' own words in John 14, 29, I have told you now before it happens. He's been talking about the end of, 
end of days. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. All right, so Jesus, the end is coming, and I want you to be in a position where when it happens, you are a believer. There's always this feeling in the Bible that, man, the end of all things is near. So what? All right, the end of all things, what, what does that mean? That's what we want to ask ourselves. What should I do in response to the end of all things? We don't just want it to be interesting. We want it to be challenging. Now, let me tell you why I think, I'm going to get a little ranty again, okay? But why I think a lot of people miss the blessing of Revelation, then I want to tell you what the blessing of Revelation actually is, in my, in my opinion. I think a lot of people miss the blessing of Revelation because they forget the number one, number one rule of studying the Bible. All right, and the number one rule of studying the Bible is this. Say it with me. Context is very good. That's okay, actually. Uh, um, context is key. Here's what that means. Before we can figure out what it means to us, when you're reading the Bible, before we can figure out what it means to us, we have to figure out what it meant to them. All right? This is not just true of Revelation. This is true for every passage of Scripture that you, you ever read. That Before you can figure out what it means to you, you have to figure out what it meant to them. What are they going through? What was life like when they lived? What, what is the, the context of the verses? And listen, sometimes this is easy. And sometimes it's easy because it says, all right, at the beginning of the passage, God's people are in slavery. Well, that's the context. Great, thank you, Bible right? God's people are in slavery. Or Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul's in prison. This is great information to have. Or the persecuted Christians living in Jerusalem. That, that's great. And sometimes it's easy to discover the context, but even when the, it doesn't outright say the, say the context, if you get a good study Bible or you get a good commentary, and I have a bunch of them in my office if you just want to see some examples, you can learn what the, the context is and, and background is of every passage you're studying. Now, here's the thing. If you apply scripture to you, this is, and this is our, our tendency in America, if you apply scripture to you without first having applied it to them, you're going to misunderstand a lot of things. And, and I say that we struggle with this in America, just, just we think everything's about us, right? So if you apply it to you before you've applied it to them, you're going to miss some of the key meanings of Revelation. John Ortberg gives a great illustration of this. He says, imagine that you're living in like 300 years from now, and you're reading about an event that happened in Chicago in 1999, and this is what you read, all right? Take a look at it with me. It says, the bull which once ruled the earth has had a mighty fall. The great, white, the great right horn, whose number is 20 and 3, let the reader understand he is departed. And the left horn likewise is gone, as is the third horn, which was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman. And the hornets and the timber wolves and all the beasts of the field have come together to devour the flesh of the bull. Now, it would be helpful for you to understand that in 1999, there was a basketball player named Michael Jordan who wore number 23, and that was the year of his retirement, and he played with a guy named Dennis Rodman who had a lot of different piercings and wore women's clothes, right? Now, if you didn't understand that, and in 300 years you just came across that text, you would attempt to apply that to you, not having applied it to them, and you would misunderstand that. You'd say, oh, what is what is the number 23? You know, I got $23 in my wallet. Is this talking about me? Oh, no, yeah. 
No, it's not talking about you. You, you. you have to understand the context before you move any further. And this is the mistake people make with Revelation. And it's so simple to overcome. A commentary overcomes it. Right? A, a good study Bible overcomes it. But they apply it to themselves before they apply it uh, to, 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 to the people that it was written to. Right? Um, thinking about themselves before they think about them, the, 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 the people it was written to. And this is when, for instance... This is when the locusts of Revelation, when people do this, the locusts become helicopters, right? Or, or the beast becomes Microsoft. Or the Antichrist becomes Justin Bieber, right? Which I think I can actually prove to you, all right? Go back. Justin Andrew Bieber, 666. Six, six. You heard it here first, right? This is the foolishness that can come with this stuff, though, right? You apply it to your modern-day setting before you've applied it to the first century, and you can come up with all sorts of things. You know, Justin Bieber's the Antichrist, right? He's, he's the beast. And when you, when, you, when you don't do that work, which is what we're going to try to do. Now, listen, I don't want you to mishear me. There is imagery and numerology in, in, in the Bible. Go ahead and put up the next slide. I want to show you some of them just kind of moving forward. Um, so some of the imagery in the book of Revelation, when you see the imagery of the horns in the book of Revelation, this always has to do with the kings and the kingdoms of the world. Twelve is usually symbolic of God's people, twelve tribes of Israel. And the number ten has to do with completeness, that God chose to give his people ten commandments to complete them. The number seven has to do with perfection. Creation was very good after seven days of creation. There's some imagery and some numerology in the book of Revelation, but let's first of all keep it in the original context. Right? Let's not apply it to us before we apply it to them. And also let's attempt to keep that in perspective. That there is actually a very small percentage of the book of, Revel of, the book of Revelation that, that is imagery and numerology. It's actually just a fraction of, of, of the book is that way. And if you read some Bible scholars and Bible commentaries, you can get the impression that this stuff is the, the point of the book. And it's not the point of the book. I find it interesting. I find numerology interesting. I always read those Dan Brown books, you know. You know, oh, you know. None of it's true, all right? So you got to be careful about that. But I love imagery. I love numerology. But, and I could spend four hours right now walking you through a variety of things. And you know what we would do? We'd miss the blessing. We'd miss the blessing of Revelation. Because the point of Revelation is not to be interesting. The point of Revelation is to be a blessing. Um, so... I want to just walk you through real quick, and then we're going to talk about the blessing that comes from Revelation just for a few minutes. I want to talk to you about how we're going to study this book together, um, and, and then we'll, we'll talk about the blessing that it is. I've talked before about when it comes to Revelation, there's a land campaign and there's an air campaign, right? When you study it in the land campaign, you're, you're looking at all of those little details, you know, the locusts are, you know, Apache helicopters, and the beast is Microsoft, and you're looking at all of those details trying to figure out what they mean. I don't believe that's that helpful, right? Because everybody disagrees and everybody ha has a different idea of what it is. I prefer when it comes to Revelation, the air campaign, right? The air campaign is when you get above the text and you look at a, a, a scene in the text and you ask the question, what are the big ideas God is trying to communicate to his people that were true in the first century and can be true in our century? What are the big ideas that God is, is trying to communicate? So you notice a little bit of set here 
that has to do with like staging for a play because that's how I read the book of Revelation. Is it is a series of scenes. We're going to start with scene one next week. It's a series of scenes in one unfolding story. So what we want to do is next week we're looking at scene one. We want to say, all right, this is the scene. What, did, what is God trying to teach his people? How is he trying to be a blessing to his people? How is he trying to encourage his people? And then we're going to, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at 10 different scenes in the book of Revelation and what we can learn from them. But here's what I want you to see. The purpose of Revelation is not to be interesting. It is interesting. It's enormously interesting. I hope we're going to have a good time in this series. But, but the purpose is not to be interesting. The purpose is to be a blessing. And listen, um, the book of Revelation is going to be a blessing to us. Let me give you some of the blessings we're going to receive over the next few months. Um, there's going to be a blessing that's going to come by seeing the resurrected uh, Savior, Jesus. I, I think of how strange this must have been for John because John and Jesus were really good friends. And so John had seen Jesus be hungry. He'd seen Jesus perform miracles. He'd seen Jesus get tired. He'd seen Jesus get transfigured. But John, when you read Revelation, John had never seen Jesus like this before. right? So John is going to see resurrected, glorified, on the throne, Jesus. And he's going to see Jesus in a way that you and I, we've never seen him this way before. We can read about it. But John is going to see Jesus in a, in a new and completely different way. And John's going to have one reaction that I hope you have too. He's going to worship. And let me tell you something. I, I hope that the worship in church just explodes kind of off the charts as we begin to see a, a new, resurrected, glorified Jesus. There's a blessing that comes from seeing Jesus this way in the Revelation. So let me tell you about the Jesus we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus with a tattoo. <gasps> right? If you're a church lady, just, no. Now, I've been telling my grandkids not to do that, right? No. You're going to see Jesus with that tattoo on his thigh. You know what the tattoo says? King of kings and Lord of lords. You're going to see Jesus clothed in white. You're going to see him with long, kind of uh, bright white hair. You're going to see him with a, a, a face that burns like the sun. You're going to see him with fire in his eyes. You're going to see a glorified Jesus. And I hope that when you see this glorified Jesus, I hope it changes your worship. And here's what I mean by that. We all, I have this tendency and you do too, we all have a tendency to think that worship is about us. Right? So sometimes you can even see these conversations in, in, in the car on the ride home. All right? I know I know you do it because we do it too, all right? That, that you get in the car and you turn to your children or you, you turn to your spouse or whatever and you say, what did you think of worship today? Well, I like the songs or I didn't like the songs. I like the tempo. I didn't like the tempo. I wish we'd done more of this. I wish we'd done less of that. Uh, you know, and you'll begin to explain to the person you're talking to about how worship was not pleasing to you. I hope that changes for you when you see resurrected Jesus. I hope when you see him with a glowing face and fire in his eyes and on the throne, I hope that you come to the realization that worship is not about you. Worship is about him. And I hope that your worship, and I hope that my worship goes to the very next level because we're going to see him in a way. I mean, I... I love doing Life of Christ series where, you know, he's talking to people and he's doing miracles and he's being Jesus in his human form. I love those, but this, I'm telling you, this is going to be different 
because you're going to see him in his glorified form. And I hope that when you see him in his glorified form, the main thing that you want to do is what John did. Fall down as dead and worship him. Because he's do it. He deserves it. Because all of a sudden you realize this is not about me. It's not about what I like. It's not about what I prefer. It's not about what I desire. It's all about him and what he likes and what he wants and what he desires. So hopefully maybe the conversations become, boy, I I worshiped like a fool today and I hope Jesus was pleased by it. I hope Jesus was pleased by it because this is all about and all for him. So, and, and let me tell you, that kind of worship when you've been in those types of settings, that kind of worship, it is a blessing to your spirit. That maybe you walk out and say, man, for the first time, maybe a long time, this truly was not about me. This was about Jesus, and it was so refreshing to my spirit. It was so refreshing to my soul, and I'm so glad I worship in that way. So I'm talking a lot, but, you know, I'm the preacher, right? I get to talk a lot. So um, to to make it all about Jesus is going to be a blessing. Here's the second blessing. There is going to be a blessing and revelation that comes when we see that God is always in control. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. When you read the book of Revelation, One of the things we're going to learn in Revelation is that things are going to get worse in this world before they get better, all right? As a matter of fact, there are three weeks after Mother's Day in this series that I am going to ask you to not have your young children in church because these three weeks, um, what we're going to read about, it it is scary, it it is dark, it is intense, it is a little bit scary, and I I don't want to be the guy that freaks your kids out. I got to be their pastor, right? You know, I don't want to see Pastor Higgs. I'm scared, right? No, I don't want to be that guy. And so one of the things we learn in Revelation is that things are going to get worse before they're going to get better. But can I tell you something? The battle of Revelation is not, oh, how's God going to get on the throne? That is not the battle. What you're going to read in Revelation is that in chapter 2, well, even in chapter 1, God's already on the throne. He's on the throne the entire book. The battle of Revelation is not, oh, is God going to get back on the throne? Is God going to get back on the throne? No, God's on the throne. God's in control the entire time in the book of Revelation. And and the book of Revelation is not a battle uh, of God being on the throne. It is a battle of when will God finally say, enough, enough. And sin and death and and Satan are are defeated once and for all. The question of Revelation is when? When will Jesus, not if, when will Jesus return and and end it all? Because the the question of Revelation is not, is God going to get back on the throne? It doesn't seem like he's on the throne. He's on the throne the entire time. Um, So one of the questions of Revelation is, like, when do the end times begin in the Bible? Right? That, that's one of the questions. If, are we living in the end times right now? Or are the end times going to begin after Jesus' return for like a thousand years or whatever? And I, just so you know, I'm in the camp. And I want to be clear about this. I believe the end times began the minute Jesus ascended to heaven. And here's why I believe that among the, beyond the Bible. Right? I, I think that's the, the clearest thing that the Bible teaches. But beyond that is... I don't know how to make sense of this world (laughs) without an understanding that we are currently in the end of times. I don't know how to make sense of this world if if I don't have that kind of box to stand on, that the end of all things is near. Now that being said, despite it all, listen, Revelation is going to teach us that even when things are getting bad, 
God is on the throne. God has a plan. And God is going to redeem all things. So when you feel like this world's out of control, when you feel like cancer is is in charge, when you feel like God is nowhere to be found, the book of Revelation is going to teach this very, very clear. When you feel that way, listen, that is just a feeling. It is just a feeling. And you can recognize in your heart and in your mind that God is still safely and securely on his throne. And he has a plan, and he's in control, and he knows what he's doing, and he's a good God, and allow that to be a blessing to your faith. See, one of the reasons, there's this theological construct called deism, and it basically teaches that God created the world, he wound up a clock, he set it down, and then he walked away. And so deism teaches that the world is out of control and that God is not involved in the world. He's not really on the throne. He's up in heaven doing, doing whatever God does up, up in heaven. And I want to tell you why it's so important that we reject that. Because I understand the temptation of it. Because the temptation is, uh, the temptation to believe in that comes from, well, aren't things out of control? Where is God? It feels like he's absent. And I want to tell you why it's so important that we reject that theologically and understand that when we feel like it's out of control, it is just a feeling that God is indeed on the throne. He's all-powerful. He has a plan, and he's good. And here's reason number one. It's so important that we reject that. If God is on the throne, here's, here's what's true. Then I know that he is strong enough to have a plan to use my pain for good. And God wants to do that. God from the throne, he has a plan for your pain. And so, we, we, you know, if we just believe this world is just happening in happenstance and no one's in control and no one has a plan and nobody's in charge, man, that just feels so disheartening to me. But if you think, man, we're in the middle of, a, of, an, of the end of times and someday God's going to have enough and he's going to destroy all this, but until he does, we're going to continue to be in some battles and we're going to continue to be in some bad times, but God from the throne can use my pain for good, that is encouraging to me. Uh, I think about what we just studied with Holy Week, that the cross is the perfect example of this, that Jesus went through this awful thing to, for, called the cross where he was punished and he, he died, and it was awful, and it was terrible amounts of pain. And God used that pain for your salvation for mine. It's amazing. This is what a God on the throne can do. He can use your pain for, for good. Here's the other thing. If God is still on the throne, he's all-powerful, he's all-control, here's the other encouraging thing I want to give you. If that's true, and I believe that it is, then there is one I can worship that lifts my spirits beyond my pain. Right? And I think that is also so encouraging when you're in the middle of pain, that when I'm going through hard times, when I'm, when I'm going through difficult times, that there is one that I know who is above me, who has a plan, who's in control, who is good, that can lift my spirits beyond my, my pain. If God is still on the throne, I know that there's one I can rest in and receive strength from, that God's not absent from this world. He's very, very much present, and he says, I want to give you the strength you need to make it through another day. If God's on the throne, he can do that. And lastly, if God is on the throne, here's the best one of all, then I know that there is one who's powerful enough to win in the end. And this is going to be the last blessing that comes from Revelation. And here's the the last blessing of Revelation is we get to know who wins in the end. There are times as Revelation unfolds where you wonder what God is doing. 
and you wonder where he is, and it feels like things are, are, are going real bad, right? In, in, a, in, a real, in a real hurry. And at the end of the story, in the last couple of chapters, as, as things are degrading and, and things are getting harder, all of a sudden, here's what happens. A trumpet sounds. The clouds open. And Jesus comes in on a white stallion. Remember I told you before, Domitian rode a white stallion into Rome, acting as though he was God. And this is, I think, I think this is just Jesus saying, to, to John, for all of the people, Domitian's not God, I'm God. And so Jesus comes out of the clouds. He's on a, on a white stallion. His eyes are burning like fire. He has a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes and he destroys sin and death and Satan. And at the end of the story, he vanquishes them to hell for all of eternity. And... It is in the middle of pain and hardship that I just want to remind you when it feels like God's not in control, that is just a feeling. It is. It's just a feeling. And I understand why you feel that way, but you have to remind yourself this is just a feeling. God's in control. He can use my pain for good. And I know, remind yourself of this when you're in the middle of pain. I know who wins in the end. I know who wins in the end. I know who wins in the end. I just have to endure I have to keep my faith alive. I have to trust in God and his plan and his timing. And he is going to win in the end. 